0: Chats, the show where I, Josh Pinkford, founder of Bearmetrics, hop on a call with other founders and get the stories of how they started and grew their businesses. This week, I talk with Owen McCabe, co-founder of Intercom. In this episode, we talk about creativity, uh, the exploration of knowledge, how Owen and his co-founders met, the full story of how Intercom got started, uh, how the problem they're solving has changed over the past seven years and more. And if a chat with Owen isn't enough for you, I actually interviewed his co-founder, Des, a while back, which you can uh, find Go find it at FounderChats.com. Uh, side note: There's a bit of swearing in this episode. Now on with the show. Oh, and man, thanks for uh, jumping on a call. How's it going?
1: Very well. My pleasure.
0: So the way that I usually sort of start these things off with um, is talking about your childhood. Maybe that that may or may not be all that exciting, but I'm curious what you were what you were like as a kid, like the kind of stuff that you were that you were into.
1: Yeah. Um. I need to think how to kind of summarize it. I um, I always wanted to make and create. So you know, so much of the games I played as a very young kid were little games I invented or worlds I had constructed. I, I was the oldest of three kids. I had two younger sisters, um, and so I would play with them a lot when we were very small. And I would like make up stories and tell them stories and invent little worlds. Um, so I love to kind of use my imagination quite a bit. You know, one of the one of the earliest or earlier memories I have is of my mom saying, "You have a great little imagination," and I would have been very small at that stage. Um, and I, and I think up until this day, it's something I I pride myself on, and I wish I made more time to you know invent and create wild and fun ideas. But that was that was what I did a lot as a kid. Um, and there was different ways I expressed that I would, um, you know, draw and paint a lot. My mom encouraged me, um, to be quite creative. She painted a lot as a kid herself and she always kept, um, a bunch of different art materials. She'd save every little scrap of paper and piece of card from like a cereal box that we could make things out of or draw on. And there was always tons of crayons and. Chalk and chalkboards and paint and everything else. So there, there was a lot of creativity um, when I was small, and um, and as I grew up, that didn't that didn't change too much. It probably ebbed and flowed, um, but as I got a little older, the the mediums for my creativity changed, uh, and we can get into that now or later if you want.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I, I am curious the, you know, the way that you you said your, your mom sort of fostered and encouraged the creativity and what that transition like was like for, you know, I guess into computers, obviously, the, at what point did computers and like technology sort of right. enter the picture?
1: Right. Um, it's hard to say what age I was. I, I'm 34 now. I think I would have been think maybe 13 or 14, when we first got a computer in our house. We weren't the first on the street. There was plenty of families wealthier than us. And um, uh, a computer was a really, really, really big purchase for our family. I remember, you know, my dad considering it for quite some time. I had been, you know, following technology for quite a while before that. I would watch different shows on TV. There was a show called Beyond 2000 and another show called Tomorrow's World, which were all about the future. And they talk about flying cars and um, how in the future we would take little pills for our nutrition instead of meals, like kind of silly, super futuristic um, tales about the future that were still somewhat grounded and based in um, scientific ideas being explored at the time. And then there was like a, There was a magazine in Ireland at the time called PC Live that I used to um, read quite a bit. Anyone my age in Ireland might remember that. So I was kind of like into the idea of computers before we actually had one. There was a kid on the street who I got to um, hang out with and use their computer with. But when we first got our computer, it was was years before we actually um, had the internet. Um, And all that we had was... It was a Windows machine, a bunch of CD-ROMs. It was Encarta. And Encarta was basically like the poor kid's internet. And it also was the pre-internet. It was an online, not, sorry, it was not online. It was a digital Encyclopedia. Um, I think it all fit on a CD-ROM. This is before DVD-ROMs. And so that says how uh, incredibly efficient these things were. But it was a, a kind of an interactive digital encyclopedia, and you could search for all and anything. And I think most things had little photos on them, uh, and then s- some entries had dig- had like an interactive um, little interactive components. I-, I can't quite think of a particular example. For whatever reason, dinosaurs come to mind, and I feel like there was I feel like I remember exploring how fossils were were made in some sort of interactive means this was in the windows 95 days so it was an early version of Macarta, i think and so in carta was uh, you know a, a a weird way how i kind of just explored knowledge in a, in, a, in a digital means but i i i poked at every nook and cranny of the pc and the operating system you know i looked in every folder kind of by trial and error, figured out how it all fit together. Um, how all of the inner workings of the operating system were configured, give or take. There was the majority of it was still very obscure to me, and I didn't really understand it. But I, 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 I hacked at a lot of the different configuration files and broke shit and um, played around in 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 DOS and just generally through trial and error and through. Probably a thousand hours um, kind of learn how that operating system worked, and that was a kind of a simple grounding in some sort of world of software. but also, um, I played with all the applications available by default on the operating system, but the PC Live magazine had free CDs um, it would, It would come with the CD, every issue, and had a bunch of shareware. Shareware was a, a a key model for software back in the days prior to the internet being the primary means for distribution. And even after uh, the internet was a was a key means of distribution for software, shareware was still a, a, a pretty prevalent um, model. And shareware was basically freemium. Um, you know, it was installed software where you could use it for some, either some certain period of time or with some certain limitation. And, I would install all and everything. There was so much junk on it. that like they would advertise that it would come, you know, I, I feel like one of the key ways in which they'd advertise these magazines is that it would say, you know, comes with 500 <laughs> applications.
0: $500 worth of, of free applications well, or whatever. Like yeah.
1: that or 500 apps or something, right? <laughs> it was just like the biggest ton of junk. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but I would install... Yeah, yeah. Pretty much most stuff. And it was the longest range of stuff. There was games. Some of the stuff was so crappy. Then there was like more professional software like CAD. I remember playing around with some junky piece of CAD. Now, of course, a lot of this stuff was almost like maybe it was second tier products because while shareware was super prevalent, I don't think that the big brands were distributing their software through free CDs and magazines. I don't know. Or certainly not through... (laughs) Irish magazines. Um and so one of the one of the one of the one of the applications that I presume I got through that that had a really big impact on me was PaintShop Pro. And PaintShop Pro, I don't know whatever happened to it, but again that was the poor kids Photoshop. I presume that Photoshop existed at that time. I must find out what happened to PaintShop Pro. Do you remember that? No.
0: I well I I remember i mean, probably some variation of yes, yeah, some sort of like free uh, you know, it was before I like yeah. figured out how to uh, you know, like crack some version right. of downloaded right, 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 <laughs> Photoshop, right.
1: So I used Paint Shop Pro a bunch anyway, and was this was sh- shareware, and I was fascinated, fascinated by the idea back then that you could like fake photographs or you could Photoshop photographs. I, I was fascinated by it. I, I one of the other things I loved to watch on TV at the time, as well as these technology shows. Was the behind-the-scenes shows uh, or the shows where they show how movies got made? It blew my mind—the special effects and all the tricks. Another thing I loved as a kid was magic—you know, little magic kits and stuff.
0: Did you? Did you ever? I mean, I, I had a I had a T-shirt that my mom made for my like magician act. Like,
1: uh, I wasn't that nerdy slash cool, <laughs> but shout out to Josh's mom. That's beautiful. Yeah, I didn't quite right. have that, but I had a bunch of magic tricks and I thought it was so cool. Like little magic kits that come with again, they'd advertise it was like 50 tricks right? right. and gimmicky.
0: And they all, and they all, they all use like a rope.
1: <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. It's, it's 50 or a hundred tricks with three props. It's like, well, huh, okay. Right. Um, yeah. anyway, I love magic and I loved all, all, all of the trickery behind um, making movies. And, of course, a lot of the special effects back then were substantially more rudimentary than they are today. Uh, they didn't, most of them weren't digital, but digital was starting to have an effect. And for whatever reason, it blew my mind, the idea that you could create these artificial, cool, fake, different types of imagery. You know, the, the idea that you could, you know, i I feel like I remember watching a behind-the-scenes show where there was two... People of this by the same actor. I don't know if it was like something like uh, Back to the Future or something, and they showed how they made the movie with the same actor playing multiple characters and in the same frame. That was such a big deal back then. It blew my mind. So I was always so, so excited to play with PaintShop Pro. And much like I familiarized myself with every nook and cranny of the Windows 95 operating system, um, and for by the way, for anyone for whom this isn't familiar, this is the life of a nerdy kid. <laughs> like yes. you've no idea. <laughs> you have no idea, but um it works out for some of us, so, you know. Here's my
0: Well, I think it's it's the it's the whole I mean, you're when you're able to just be by yourself and yeah. find the limitations and like, you know, sort of like explore every little possible thing you yeah. can possibly think of, like that can entertain you for, for days.
1: 100%. This is the very nature of play. Play right. is pushing boundaries. It's taking risks. It's doing things that are maybe a little dangerous or wrong. Um, and And play is how kids learn about right and wrong and about themselves and their limitations and how the world works and the expectations that society have of them and so play takes so many different forms for a kid or an animal. you see how they play and test things and especially the little kids and little animals they're like they're they're naughty and bold and they'll piss off their mom and 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 this this is all that this was. this was play for a kid that was fascinated by technology and all things technical and digital and creative and so yeah i played in this computer later i played in paint shop pro um understood how every single type of tool worked i had no tutorial here i just spent hours digging deep into every tool every um variable tweaking every attribute attribute i knew the preference screens inside out how you could even lay out the tools in a different way in your workspace. Um, And I still had no internet at the time. So I learned all about PaintShop Pro, and I was just fascinated by it. And I I, I had this yearning for for, for creativity. I used to paint uh, as a younger kid. And I used the images from Encarta as source material for my Photoshopping and experimentation and artwork work. Um and that was it's kind of just funny to think back then because I, I we didn't have a digital camera and we didn't have the internet. So the only place I could get digital images was from a cartoon and I take screenshots. I, I I'm pretty sure I probably just browsed the the folder tree of the CD ROM or I found some way to look at the underlying files. And so that was that was that was the start of me getting excited about computers, how they worked and their potential, and specifically for me, their potential um, for or as a creative medium.
0: How do you think the, you know, so you talked a lot about how with Encarta and um, even like the magazines, but then having the computer where you spent a ton of time to me it's like the pursuit of knowledge on some level where you're trying to just figure out how it works. Mm -hmm. And then at some point that transitions or at least augments or assists in the, the creative side. So for you, do you, do you enjoy the sort of pursuit of knowledge more than creativity or do you, is it more sort of this like intersection of the two is where you, you find sort of a lot of joy with that?
1: Yeah. Super interesting question. Um, I, you know, (sighs) Like, I don't think I have the same, same deep yearning for fresh and new knowledge like some others do. There's some incredible people out there that just want to know all things about all things. And they are never happier than when they have a book or some outlet to just get smart about any esoteric subject. could be plumbing or World War II aircraft. Um, They just find it interesting, and that's kind of not me. I I say that with some hesitation because it's not like I'm ever not interested. Somehow I can... Like, if the information is in front of me, it will ignite my intellectual curiosity and when I learn about a thing so we're talking about plumbing which I know nothing about but I bet there's a whole bunch of different ways in which you even plumb a residential building that actually are super interesting and fascinating there's a bunch of problems that at least I maybe you you tell me have never even thought about um, sure how does the water not just come straight out of the top of the toilet <laughs> And actually, the tank is 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 above it. Like, there's like a lot of like dumb, simple things. And if you present, if you explain that to me, I'll be like, "Huh, that's super smart." And in my head, I'm starting to think, "I wonder who first came up with that idea, and what did they have before that?" But I don't. I'm not excited to spend my time pursuing this stuff. And I always was more excited, more interested in trying it out for myself. Playing with it myself and putting my mark on something, um, like
0: well, figuring out how to put that knowledge into some sort of action, whether it was like creativity or just like function. I,
1: I think so. It's kind of a thing where it's yeah. where it's like when you learn enough about a new domain or your someone's teaching you something. For me, before they get to the end, I'm like, okay, 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 okay. Let let me have a go.
0: Right. Um, well, I think of like uh, like chemistry classes in in school. Like I was terrible at the memorizing all the things, but I mean I could crush like a chemistry lab because I love just doing the thing. Yeah, the
1: the the, the practical part. Yeah, but there, right. there there is a part of creativity where you need to know enough about the subject matter and what came before too, and and uh, uh, art doesn't exist in a vacuum, or certainly. Uh, creative work that's intended to resonate with any certain types of people or with certain ideas, it needs the background and the context um, uh, within which it can actually play and live. And so uh, part of the creative process is learning and knowing what came before and developing taste and then understanding your tools, and so for me, you know, if even you just take the little Photoshop example, or the PaintShop Pro example, I was simultaneously developing taste for what was possible when I looked at these behind-the-scenes shows, and also learning the 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 the, the tools and the craft when I played with with this PaintShop Pro thing, and 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 there's there's obviously a key interplay there. You need to know how, but you also need to know what is good or what you think is good. And so I don't know. I don't have a really, really great model for, for explaining that there, but part of it came from my own ego and wanting to kind of put my name on something and, and, and be special and valid and interesting. And, and, and I think pretty much, I mean, I certainly have never met a creative person in any field who hasn't been driven by that thing to kind of uh, want to prove their worth and attain love in the world?
0: Yeah, no, that, I think that's spot on. How did how did all that come into play for you with with school? Would you were you uh, you know a good student or hated school or?
1: I think um, I've often thought, as we all think about ourselves, I've often thought, hmm, I wonder how smart I actually am like I think I'm smart no I know I'm smart but am I really really smart or am I just pretty damn smart so it's something I'm just not sure of I'm still not sure of but I was always a pretty damn smart kid and my types of smarts was pretty broad where I see people you know we've hired over 500 people here at intercom and I've interviewed probably that number of people too in my time maybe more, Um, I can spot particularly intelligent people, but traditional intelligence often is kind of uh, spiky and uh, sometimes you find people who like, you imagine they might have an insanely high IQ, but it's kind of very left brain oriented or analytical or it's just more traditional IQ or it's kind of one-dimensional in a sense. I don't mean that in a judgmental way that's super useful and people can do things with that that I could never do. But my types of smarts was very, very broad and squishy and I could think in multiple directions. And I think I was able to apply myself to a bunch of different subjects in school. Language wasn't ever really a big, wasn't anything I was pretty great at, but I I studied physics and chemistry and applied math um, in high school and I was good at that, but not really because... I studied a bunch, but more that I was both fascinated by it and I it just came pretty natural to me. I could kind of think about it from a bunch of different directions and think about it in an applied sense. You know, when I studied physics, uh, certainly a lot of people in the class that did really well on their tests, they studied the, um, the numbers and the formula and the terms, and they were able to regurgitate regurgitate that in exams or or apply it in exams. Maybe they understood the mechanics of those things. Whereas I was always fascinated by the practical implications of these things. And so I was, you know, always watching technology shows and, and, and shows about engineering and whatnot um, and reading about these things. And so when I'd learn about something in applied math or physics, I'd typically tie it back to something I'd been reading about. And so I had a, an applied way of doing things. I did well in school, um, but um, it was really just uh, it was it was through use of my intuition, and 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 I wasn't great at studying. I often was in my own head and inventing and dreaming. And I remember, for example, that when I read the Lord of the Rings books, I specifically read them when I was in my room, supposed to be studying. You know, I'd come upstairs to my room, and my mom understood that this was study time or homework time, and i take out the latest storybook and just read that instead. Um, so, yeah, so that's how that's how school worked for me. But it was an interesting uh, opportunity and a place for me to get to continue to play with the things that were interesting. And so, you know, I, I did pretty good in art, and um, I thought for some time I'd like to be an artist. I didn't know what that meant. Um, I was in the school play at the time. I thought I'd like to be an actor. Didn't know what that meant. I felt I was pretty damn good at both art and acting and got a ton of great feedback for those things. Um, of course I studied all these subjects the science and math subjects and did well there, but never really imagined at that stage in high school that I'd use them for real. When I was a younger kid, I thought I wanted to be a scientist, but of course, when you have these ideas, you don't know what these things entail or what they mean. Um, but I also studied, uh, and enjoyed, it was a class called technology, pretty broad name, but you, uh, got to play with electronics and different materials, uh, synthetic materials. And, uh, and that was about the time I got into technology. So sorry, into, into electronics. Electronics was my vehicle for creativity at about that time. I was probably 16 and I, had an uncle who thought electronics in a i think some sort of community college and he lent me a bunch of books and i used to go to the lo- local um the local electronics store i think it was called radio onyx in ireland i think radio shack in the us probably sold those types of components all the little electronics components or maybe there was other places yeah yeah
0: no, that was that was like almost exclusively like that was the main place. It,
1: and you, you and, and they probably sell those little kits where you can make different things like radio.
0: Absolutely. Right, exactly. Yes. Exactly. So
1: right. I spent a lot of time on that, soldering stuff in my room, um, and so that was kind of at that time was my vehicle for creativity. I I didn't imagine. I don't think I imagined that I would uh, do anything with it professionally.
0: Uh, by this time, I mean, you, you know, you kind of had this early history with like Paint Shop Pro right. and sort of digital art. I mean, at, by the time you were in high school, were you still doing any of that, or was it you were almost doing more in the sort of physical? Yeah, um, I, I mean,
1: yeah. So, so at, I mean, at this stage, we had got the internet at home. In parallel, when I was fourteen or so, I started to make things for for the internet. So I was constantly making. Um. So this was even probably before I was getting into electronics. I made my first website in 1996. We need to calculate what age I was then, see if all the numbers line up. Um, But um, as soon as we got online, we actually got online through AOL. AOL came to Ireland, which was kind of interesting and weird.
0: Did it, did it come through? I mean, you know, here in the states, it was like via the CD-ROM. I mean, yeah. is that the same? Did they do the same distribution? Yes.
1: I like collected those CD-ROMs just because I yes. thought it was fascinating. Uh, right. So I had like CompuServe and AOL, but a whole bunch of stuff, a bunch of stuff that you would have never heard heard of. There would have been Irish ISPs and then some European ISPs. And at the time, they were doing some interesting things. Like there was the, there was one that was free, which was fascinating. This is all dial-up, of course. Um. Right. I don't know how that model worked. It was free for somewhere, somehow. It was called Ocean Free. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's what it was called, Ocean Free. And uh, so I was finally online. and for, But for the most part, I think it was through AOL. And AOL tried to kind of own the internet there. Then They tried to be the internet. So you'd log in through this panel or through this kind of interface that took over your whole screen, pretty much. And it would have in it a web browser, chat, email, And I had like a portal and then there was AOL keywords. And the idea was, I think that on TV adverts and other places, people would say, you know, check us out at AOL keyword, Coca-Cola.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, they, they owned that. Like they somehow, somehow like completely bypassed the idea of a domain. Right. And just, so there was like the ultimate, you have to try to rank for this keyword thing because otherwise no one would find your site.
1: Well, you'd pay. pay They tried to own the whole internet and that's why they were so successful back then. But I think by the time they came to Ireland and by the time I got online, it was kind of at the tail end of, of their success. Um, And I was on ICQ and all sorts of different things back then. Um, But making things online and and in particular making uh, things for the web, making websites was probably one of my biggest passions. It was, you know, the start of me um, being exposed to some sort of computer language, really. And that was HTML. And I played with a little bit of JavaScript. JavaScript was cool back then. Those were the days of GeoCities. Then it got not cool. And then it became cool again eight years ago. Uh, So this is the first time it was cool. Of course, back then it was for like scrolling banners and all sorts of nasty stuff. Um, So I would make a bunch of sites and I I made them on GeoCities. And GeoCities was like, it was this really cool thing. It was an online community where they gave you free, very basic hosting. I'm pretty sure that every GeoCities page had to have some sort of little banner at the bottom that said something like Powered by GeoCities, and it maybe also linked back to the main GeoCities site, but also the community that you're in. GeoCities was organized by these different communities. Like they had the idea that it was multiple cities, and I'm not sure what the criteria was. Maybe you know, but I think there was ones that was like a city that was all about personal sites, and then maybe there was stuff about music. Um, do you remember
0: It was it was all like very sort of what you would think of in a directory, right? You know, the same way that you would organize anything. They tried to organize basically the web, exactly, but for free, exactly. Uh,
1: And so that was super fun. But they had like guest books and everything else. I didn't really interact with much people, and I had no clue how people got to my website. Um, Later on, through a different ISP, I got another little bit of online hosting, and I had like my second site. It was probably in and around that time that. I finally got got some sort of hosting that allowed you to have like server-side executable stuff. So all the free hosting back then was all just HTML and it all ran a client. So you were limited with what you do. And I would read online about all these cool scripts um, that would let you like run your own guest book or forum or whatever. And that was so out of reach for me. And I certainly wasn't about to pay for... Any kind of hosting. But eventually, as time went on, I think some of the free hosts actually had a type of free hosting that you could run stuff server side. It was all CGI. It was what it was called. Uh, I actually don't know what the hell that stands for, but it was all executables. Um, And um, so I just played a lot online, making things online. And, you know, it's hard to know what the, exact sequence was, but I had, I think, made a bunch of stuff for myself online. Then when I was in high school and I was starting to get into electronics and going through what they call in Ireland transition year. So it's this one year between that that is sandwiched between two or three other years on either side. And in in each of those other years, you do this big major exam. So it's kind of like a break year where you get to try a bunch of different things and you do work experience. And you also do mini-companies, mini-businesses. And so we had this mini-company, and this was like a bunch of years after I'd been making websites just for myself playing. Um, We had this company called portmarnockhome.com. So Port Marnock was uh, the little town that I grew up on, a little coastal town in Dublin, Ireland. And my idea was to make this directory of local businesses it's so ludicrous the scale of the ambition back then not only was it uh, not just for Ireland or just for Dublin it was just for Port Marnock, which probably had a population of 10,000 people um, <laughs> but we um we built a bunch of hype and uh, got people signing up for like the you know the they put their email in to be notified when they get when it was gonna launch and we like contacted a bunch of B&Bs that we were going to try and get them to advertise on. But like you know, most web projects, and certainly my first web enterprise, it got no further than the collect email part, than the landing page part. That was my, <laughs> I had a very early lesson in just how easy it is to quote unquote launch a thing but not launch a thing or make a landing page um, before you had actually built anything. Um, and. And that, that that made me take a very pragmatic approach to business later on, realizing that it was important to build the thing before you actually go and announce it. But um, So that was my first kind of time I had built any any website that was going to be seen more broadly and publicly. And it was like all sorts of DOM. It was built in Dreamweaver. Um, back then, the way you would do, uh, the way you'd lay out stuff was that you would use these super intricate tables. And you chop up the design into 100 little images that sat in all the table cells. And then you could lay out the page in any way you wanted. This is before the prevalence of CSS. Um, and so it was one of those really icky sites. Um, but that was like my first you know, pseudo commercial site. And I was like 16, 17 at the time. That was before it really got started.
0: What, how did, what was the transition? So you went to, um, to university for what computer science. So how did you go from, you know, you mentioned high school being into physics, chemistry, math, you took this sort of technology electronics class, like you had dabbled in the the arts side of things with acting and then, you know, um, even the Photoshop stuff. But then what, what was it that made you decide, okay, computer science is what, what I'm going to keep doing.
1: Um, I'm not sure I honestly know, but I, I think part of it was, I had the idea in my head that I could go to Trinity college, which was college I went to in Ireland, which is the highest ranked college in Ireland. Of course, there's great college rivalry in Ireland. So anyone who listens to this, who didn't go to Trinity will say to themselves, it's so fucking typical that I talk up this place. Um, but you know, I thought as a kid that this is the place I wanted to be. Um, and um, this is about the time I was starting to get some confidence in myself. I kind of had low confidence as a kid. but I started to realize I could do stuff and I was smart and and I could maybe put my mark on something. And so I had it in my head. I want to go to the best college. I love the prestige of it. And they had an open day um, where you could go in and meet people from the various courses And I think I did have it on my mind that like computer science is what I wanted to do. But I remember going to the open day, I would have been 17 or so. And I think I went directly to the computer science department thing and they had so much cool stuff. Oscilloscopes with like all these waves doing stuff. God knows what, I mean, it was a cheap, a cheap set of tricks they played. They didn't actually talk about any of the 60% math we had to do. Uh, they just showed a bunch of flashy stuff, but it was pretty exciting. And um, I can't honestly say, I mean, I'd need to do a little a little bit of deep, deep thinking to remember how computer science came to mind. But I think it was kind of the confluence of the idea that I had it in my mind, certainly that I wanted to be a scientist as a kid. Then as time went on, you know, I think I got turned off the idea of like more traditional scientist or someone in a lab. I did work experience in a lab Um, when I was 16, it's pretty fascinating. They like, let me do titrations for key quality control tests. (laughs) They shouldn't have done that. Um, I I won't say who who they are, but I think they're out of business now. And, um, and that was not that interesting. It was kind of cool to wear like a little white lab coat because you kind of felt somehow important. I don't know. That was kind of cool. Everyone else in the, it was a proper lab. It was so cool. That part was cool. Yeah. But it was also kind of boring. You know, I had this idea of being a chemist or a scientist that there was all this, like, explosions and sparks and smoke and excitement. And actually, the lab was just tons of procedures. Every single titration, you had this big, big folder, and you'd have to follow these steps and write down all these little notes and these little cells and these sheets. It was not for me. Um, They say never meet your hero. Maybe you should never... Try the job you really, really want, but um, no, you should. So I, uh, I, I knew I didn't want to be whatever I thought a traditional scientist was, but I still like the idea of a, of of being a scientist. So I think the term computer science was like, whoa, this is like a real. There's something, you know, hardcore about this. I think was probably how I thought about it. And then I had been watching these technology shows, and I'd been playing with computers for forever, and I clearly was good at computers, whatever that meant. And I was making websites and whatnot. And I was, computers were my domain. So, I mean, that's the answer. I like the idea of being a scientist. I was able to like figure stuff out in school when it came to math and physics and everything else. Um, computers were, were my domain, it, they were my vehicle for creativity. They were my nerdy way to have fun. And so, computer science was obvious. It's probably a pretty great example of like great marketing the name in and of itself computer science it could be called so many different things i mean does the term liberal arts um excite people who will be excited by those things in the same ways that's confusing to me but computer science fuck yeah that sounds so cool especially
0: well to me uh well, I, I think of like because uh, I I had a brief um, uh, stint where I was I, I was majoring in computer science, and then I realized that there's I didn't like the programming component of it <laughs> that much, or even I I liked I liked the creative part, like using technology to to make stuff, but not the like let's figure out binary, right? Right, right. right. Um, I found
1: that stuff pretty interesting, but kind of in, in some sort of fleeting way. You know, I did find it interesting, and I it, it was fascinating to me to learn from the ground up how computers worked because we went to a you know my course of a very traditional course the computer science department in in trinity is one of the oldest in the world and so all the first years we were just doing a bunch of math but also and then learning about boolean logic but then also a lot of electronics uh, and then finally you know how you know, how transistors worked and then finally how gates worked and then finally how, you know, a lot of these chips and the programmable logic worked. And we we, our our, our knowledge was built from the ground up. And then much later, we kind of get to more sophisticated types of programming. So I did find that pretty damn interesting. But um, in the same way, I found all knowledge interesting, which was like, let me do something cool with this. Let me push the boundaries a little. And so college was interesting for me because it was on one part I was like consulting the whole time I was making websites for for businesses you know I started working for myself in that respect when I was 16 or 17 after the first failed commercial endeavor uh that was this this local portal I started to connect with local businesses and I made websites for them etc but I did that all through college which was stressful I I you know probably shouldn't have done it and I had arrangements with clients. I was just a kid. I didn't know how to set expectations. And there's a kind of a perverted dynamic where it's like, I'm so grateful to all these businesses that gave me a a shot at doing business with them and learning how to do business and making money and and getting experienced. And then at the same time, the types of businesses that will hire a 16, 17, 18-year-old you know what I'm getting at? They're like, yes, they're, there's something up there. They want it for cheap, right. and they want to take advantage. They don't often know that. They don't realize they're taking advantage of these kids. But um, so I don't mean to hate or hate hate on them or blame them. But let's just say, like, if if say imagine Intercom hired a 17 year old to do their website, which just Intercom just would not. I like the idea of offering them that opportunity, but we've got so much going on here. We can't afford to play around. Not only will we not hire a 17 year old, we want to hire like the very best people in their field, but if we did, because we're professionals, I like to think, and we have hired a bunch of contractors before, and I've been in the business and on the other end of it, I think we'd be able to give them good experience and we'd be able to help them help us, whereas the typical company that actually does think hiring a kid is a good idea is the opposite. Anyway, rant over, but I had some (laughs) tricky experiences and thought I was going to get sued and all sorts of stuff. Kids in college shouldn't be worrying about this. That said, I mean, I came out of college and I, and I'll, I'll talk a little more about that in just a second, but I came out of college, like having four years of business under my belt and ready to go at the age of 21 to like start my first company again, potentially and probably too early, but, it gave me just a phenomenal man. Of
0: well, I, I mean, you mentioned like you came out of college knowing basically you've given yourself a business degree. And I think a lot of times people go to college and they choose something like they major in business or some version of it when you could get the same experience a lot faster if you just went and started a business. I think
1: that's quite you know? possibly true. The truth is there's there's no... There's no right way to do any of this stuff. Every path right, is valid. And the beautiful thing about humans is the degree to which they're so, so different. And their and their difference comes from their, the diversity of their experiences. And so if everyone, you know, went to college and studied the same things and was, you know, equally studious, oh my God, how boring would that be? And that was what education was actually designed for. It was designed for in, for creating um, commodity labor in the industrial age. It was actually designed to create people that all look the same on paper and could do re- repetitive tasks. Right? That the, the nature of labor has certainly changed in the in the Western world today, where we don't want people to do repetitive tasks. We want their creativity now. Uh, and ironically, they're still going to college, and I don't think college is necessarily all the terrible idea but it the 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 traditional idea for what it's supposed to be is is a little uh um let's just say not um aligned with the type of people we want today but all of that said um yeah i'm glad that i had this like this broad experience and for people who go and do study business and they learn a bunch of things that's going to be really useful for that too I, i will say that there's you know, diversity of experience both helps you to uh, learn what you might like and who you might be, but it also gives you a richness that will allow you to be so much more su- successful in this modern world. We don't want linearly intelligent people anymore. We want very broad, well-rounded people. And... um Like I said, most labor and work today is creative to some degree. And To be creative, like we talked about earlier, you need to understand your subject matter. And today, the subject matter is so, so broad. Think about whether it's running a company in my position or even, say, someone in marketing at Intercom. Let's just talk about marketing at Intercom. Say they're a product marketer. They need to understand the world of software. They need to understand, you know, how, you know, say, marketing materials get made and the process the creative process there and how our brand design studio works. They also just need to, a, a bit a general business acumen. They need to know how people think and what motivates them. They need to understand the, the, the business problems of our customers. You know, there's like a long list of really broad things. And you actually don't learn at like any of that in all one course in college. Um and so, you know, while all paths are 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 valid and and that is that is the awesome thing that creates the beauty. That is the, the diversity of humankind. Um, dabbling and playing and trying a bunch of different things is a really great way to learn who the hell you are and have the breath required for this world.
0: I, I think like, so there's, there's some sort of, I don't know where the convergence point of this really should be, but it's like you think of college is, you know, on some level, it's here are the things you should know, and here's how, and and here is the knowledge that goes with that. So that's very sort of prescriptive, you know. Everybody kind of goes through the same um, siphon there. Then you've got the extreme other side of that is you know what we were talking about earlier, where it's a hundred percent exploratory. I have no idea what I'm even trying to look for, but I'm just like poking and prodding at something until I figure it out. And then there's the sort of YouTube level of people almost don't do the ex- exploration part but they can learn anything they want but that's still like somebody's feeding it to them and I I don't know where like the happy medium is there of you know this sort of aimless exploration that you stumble upon things you never would have yeah. thought of um, but then also having somebody who has being able to learn from someone else's experience is also really yeah, valuable right.
1: but, but, but um, again there's no right answer for, for, for all sure. people and, and, and the cool thing is that you know people we are always worried about the future and what decisions we should make and where we should go and yet we will always make the right decisions for who we are to become and the people who want to learn in this very kind of close and defined way maybe through studying stuff on youtube that's right for them um yeah. the one thing that i will say for for folks earlier in life and who were thinking about college Probably one of the best things about college is simply exposure to more people and more people like you, an opportunity to play and learn who you are. We play on different levels of abstraction in our lives. As a kid, we're probably playing with our own strength or playing what what our moms and dads will allow us or not allow us to do. But in college, you're kind of playing with your identity quite often. And you're uh, playing with your interests in a way you never got to before, because you're going to get exposed to a bunch of different types of interests. You're probably playing with the degree to which you want to uh, interface with society. Do you want to get involved in these political and debating type things? Or is that just not for you? Uh, you're playing, you're playing with so many things. And so I, I think the college is one of the best things about college is just, it's this fabulous playground for young adults to allow them to discover them.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. What um, what was the transition like from, you know, you, you got all this experience doing consulting in college, and did you guys, did you start Contrast right out of college?
1: Yeah, so right out of college, I I actually founded a company creatively named Own McCabe Limited. <laughs> um, so in, in Ireland and in the UK uh, and, probably, and a bunch of companies, kind of more commonwealth countries, uh, limited is the term used. I think it's probably equivalent to LLC here. Um, or maybe it's just like your C-Corp here is, is the equivalent of a limited company. And um, so Omicable Limited was the name. And I actually, I actually started it simply to give me protection from the bigger contracts I was starting to deal Like I had a contract at the time where I was I was designing some site for Vodafone, and I was still just twenty one, and it was actually needlessly, give or take, it was needlessly uh, cautious. But I was afraid that I would get sued or whatever. It was it was needlessly cautious, but it was a way for it was a way it was a it was a home for my business endeavors. And then um, I met a couple great people, um, namely uh, Paul Campbell. Uh, Paul Campbell went on to do Tito, which is the uh, a, a ticketing um, system that you see at a lot of tech conferences, and Dave Rice, and um, at a we started to work on doing a larger web development projects. I think the name contrast happened basically at the same time they joined, and um, and I was still twenty one, twenty two at the time. And I'm kind of racing ahead a little bit, but uh, that was like my first foray into actually having a company and running a company and managing money. I actually still have the little cash flow spreadsheets I made back then, which are so hilarious <laughs> because, well, let's just say they don't look like the cash flow spreadsheets we look at at Intercom. Uh, and I would <laughs> I need to show our head of finance those things I made. As a twenty-one-year-old, they were kind of a joke, but that was the that was the first time it kind of got a little bit serious. And the the like, I I still think the internet was is in its infancy today. I still think that the 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 effect that the internet will have on the world has for the most part yet to be seen. Um, but it was a brand newborn, relatively speaking, back then. Or maybe it was two months old and it was a newborn, give or take, when I got started. Or maybe it was two weeks old when I got started and I missed a newborn face. But uh, there was no Twitter um, or Twitter hadn't really got started. I joined Twitter in 2006. This is right before before it kicked off. And Twitter actually was the main vehicle by which, and still is, uh, so many different professional people became familiar with each other and how people promoted their professional profiles. And so actually, um, the main way I promoted my professional profile was through blogging. And a certain guy named Des Trainer was also blogging in Ireland at the time. And so we got to know each other through each other's blogs, and we'd comment on each other's blogs. I wrote posts that were kind of, how would I say, hot-headed and opinionated and controversial, Dez wrote posts that were still opinionated, but kind of considered and uh, <laughs> contained, you know, were a little more academic and contained a little more analysis. And that's just the dynamic between Des and I, it always has been. And so Des was working for, uh, you know, the hottest, uh, uh, Software design agency at the time. Back then, it was called IQ Content, and through a bunch of conversations, Des agreed to join Intercom. Was a big coup at the time, and that was like the the that was the first four. Sorry, not Intercom. Contrast, and that was yeah. the first. Uh, yeah. That was the first four of us. It was me, Paul, David, and Des, and and that's where we kind of started our adventure together. We started Exceptional together. It was uh, our first software company, and and uh, yeah, we had a bunch of fun at that time.
0: So okay, so you you met uh you've got you, Des, Paul, and David doing stuff at contrast, like doing essentially a mixture of consulting work, but also building your own your own software, yeah, that's right? That's right.
1: Like the yeah. You had something else. Yeah.
0: So so then you've got exceptional and what else?
1: Yeah.
0: Did you guys I feel like you guys had a couple other yeah, things?
1: I actually I wonder do we at that stage? I mean, I had built I built a thing before I started Contrast called Fold Spy, which was um, this thing you'd install on your site, and it would measure how far down people scrolled, basically where was the fold on your site. And um, the idea was that it was it would help, you know, content producers and advertisers figure out where to put their ads. I still don't think it's a terrible idea. I presume that there's some stuff that does that now, but um, that was kind of the first kind of business or thing that I started. At contrast, you know, we, we looked up to 37 Signals, now Basecamp so much back then. I read their Getting Real book, which is just a PDF that you bought and I printed out on the college printers uh, in a big thick binder. I read that before I, I kind of graduated and started my first company. And so, so I and everyone else, Daz and Paul and David, we had all read Getting Real we love the idea of having like a product company and and this is the part that you absolutely get the idea that and and the way we thought about it at the time that we would have you know frankly just like uh you know recurring kind of income um that that came not from selling our hours to the highest bidder and moving on to the next but from something you built through investing in it uh uh, a topic you were passionate about over some long enough period of time. So, um, yeah, we were all enamored by that idea. So enamored by that idea, and and so our goal always was to build things on the side, was to try and get out of the consult- consulting racket. You know, we it, it's it's unfortunate, but it's just true. But you know, none of us wanted to be consultants. We you know m- resented most of the work that we had to do, which was really dumb. Um, but 37 Signals themselves, they had previously been consultants. They were a, they were a studio, and and so we believed in their in the possibility that their story showed um, could happen.
0: They, should, they sort of like laid the framework of kind of how you could become this sort of software uh, or building your own stuff and not doing the consulting yeah, thing.
1: That's right, and they spoke a lot about that. And they were kind of one of the first known SaaS products out there you know, I think probably Salesforce were, 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 were there before them. Um, but Basecamp was one of the first self-serve SaaS products that I ever came across.
0: Well, it almost felt like it, it felt accessible too, from a, uh, if you had an idea, they should, it seemed like, okay, I could, I could have an idea and I could make something like that happen too.
1: Yeah, that too. That also. Yeah. Yeah. Although their brand was so strong such that, I don't know, it was hard to imagine that you ever might be as cool and noteworthy is there sure. you know so it, it it i never we never thought like oh that's easy right like we, we we never thought that we 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 always when we were building these things we're building it on a hope and a prayer and we didn't know other people who had SaaS companies like we would go to say ruby on rails conferences back then and i think we'd meet maybe one or two people and they had built some online thing and you know you'd hear that they make 6k a month from it and we'd be like wow <laughs> like oh my god like so we didn't really know people who did that back then but we dabbled with to your question we dabbled with a bunch of different things but i don't think we ever made a whole product i've probably just mentally moved on from it yeah. but we 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 had a bunch of different ideas um but we never actually we never uh I don't think we ever seriously explored uh, other of them. Um, exceptional was Dave Rice's idea, and um, it just seemed smart. And what it was is you'd install it in your your app, uh, your, your web or mobile app, and it would catch errors. It was the first kind of of its kind. After that, there was a thing called Hop by the Thoughtbot guys in Boston. And then later, there's a bunch of other stuff, Crashlytics and other stuff. Uh, and then New Relic eventually built error tracking. So it was kind of a feature in a sense, more than a full product, but it actually worked. We had customers, we had thousands of customers, we had revenue, albeit small. And so that was the first time that we actually had a business. Uh, Paul and uh, Dave left and we had David Barrett and Kieran Lee and Derek Curran for a while and. a and one or two other people, um, in contrast, working on Exceptional. Um, eventually, it was just me, Des, Kiran, David, who would become the founders of Intercom. And, and Exceptional was like the first time we had a little business and customers and revenue and support tickets and bugs and all this other stuff. It was pretty magical. It was the first time we really had, we achieved that dream finally, albeit a bunch of years later
0: so how what what was the transition from hey, we've got exceptional presumably you've got uh you know intercom seems if, if I recall correctly it was like a you guys noticed that there was you needed to message customers and email customers and all that, and so you kind of have this idea for intercom I mean like how did how did intercom actually come about
1: yep so the, it, here's how so in exceptional we you know, I was, like I explained earlier, always had this thirst for creativity and putting my mark on something and trying new things. And the whole um, name for the company, Contrast, was was came from the idea that we wanted to do things differently. And Dez and I used to write about software design a bunch back then, and we had this talk that we gave at the time called "Unconventional Web Apps." The term "web app" was a thing, and so we used to experiment with a bunch of different ways of doing familiar things. We, we liked to break familiar patterns. And one of the things we did was back then, a web application basically looked like a website. Um, and, 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 and by that, I mean it had a header with a big logo on the top left, probably a bunch of white space to the right, maybe a phone number or something on the top right, then a navigation bar under... Um, It was a website because it came from websites. Web applications were souped up websites. And to me, that didn't make any sense. I'm like, hold on a second. This is a piece of software. Like desktop software doesn't have these big logos, super big logos and headers taking up all this space. This is ludicrous. So one of the things we did with Exception was that it took up the whole screen. It didn't have this big banner. It looked like the way web applications look today, like if you look at intercom for example um or really any modern web application, similarly they don't have this big logo, whatever they have like little little control bars and whatnot typically these days on the left um, and but we were i we were the first to do it that we knew of or certainly i didn't I didn't come across anyone else to do that kind of get rid of all these like web web things, and we had a tiny little logo in the bottom right, the exceptional Logo was a really uninspired star inside a box. And that, that was like in the bottom right, a little tiny little subtle stamp. And we had built this cool thing called system notifications. I think is what we called it. God knows where the original idea came from. Um, but it could, the little logo in the bottom right-hand corner, which was like, it was a rounded corner thing. So it looked like an app icon like on your iPhone. We built this thing where a speech bubble could come out of the exceptional logo and it could talk to you. And it was designed so that it kind of it overlaid over the main interface. It had a little shadow behind it and it had this content box which could take html and the speech bubble could expand to hold other stuff. And on the back end and this was all part of the exceptional app, you could sp- you could create a new notification dump in the html could be images could be like call to actions often we use it to announce that we were maybe going to be offline for the weekend or we'd announce a new feature or maybe a blog post and then you could set a date where it was going to time out where it would disappear after and and that was it and it was so cool like I, who I wasn't, I never programmed. I never was one of the people on the team who actually built any any of this stuff. I designed the interfaces and I did the front-end development. I could go in and I could push these little announcements and it clearly got an engagement. People in the app would see it. And it blew my mind that we just had this cool little way for on that day that a couple thousand people who were gonna log in would see this little notification. It blew my mind because I just didn't believe in email and I hated email spam. And every time we sent mail, I was like, are they even going to open it? Are they going to see it? Aren't they going to resent it? Um, If they open it, are they even going to read or click on it? I just had no confidence in email. I just always found it icky and gross. But I love the idea of being able to show them this thing in the right context, at the right time, in the right place. And so we had that, and it was awesome. And I remember saying to Kieran, as a joke, like, I think we were exploring new ideas at the time. I said, it'd be fun. I mean, I said something like, you could make, you could productize that little speech bubble. And we laughed. Uh, and uh, and then we kind of went quiet. And I, I don't know if in the moment I took it that seriously, but I thought it was a cool idea, but I, I didn't realize it could be like, I didn't think it could necessarily be a big idea, but I did think people would use it. I thought, that's yeah, kind of cool. And that was it. And then uh, kind of fast forward, that was maybe November 2010. Fast forward to like December 2010. I was in Berlin at the time with my girlfriend at the time. And we were kind of having arguments and not getting on super well. And so we had rented this apartment and I was just, I was, I was uh, getting out of the apartment to give us both some space. And that winter in Berlin, it snowed so much. It was, I mean, we were only there a few days. And during that time, it snowed a couple of feet, I think. It was insane snow, but also so beautiful. And you know the way when you think of some certain times, you can kind of feel it too. Sometimes you tell a little story because you can remember it. And someone told you, they've retold a the story. And so you kind of have, you have the words, or you have, but you don't really have the memory. But I have the memory and the feeling for this. It's probably because there was so much going on, but I felt pretty lonely and alone, pretty down. And it was just this poetic, theatrical kind of thing. I was in Berlin. I'd never really been to Berlin before. Berlin is just so heavy anyway. Just the weight, the feeling there. It's, it's one of my favorite cities in the whole world. And just the vibe there is so viscerally hmm, melodramatic almost. Yep, And So I'm there in this place and it's snowing and you know there was no cars on the street because they couldn't get through and I'm all on my own and the arguments and everything else. And at the same time, I'm tossing this idea around in my head. And I went to this cool little tavern that I since found and I need to find again. But you had to kind of bend your head to get in the door. And they served beer in these ceramic tankards. And... Uh, I couldn't speak German, but I could point at the menu. And I just fleshed out this whole idea. And the idea was um, this means to reach out to users inside your app. Um, but not only could you just like create a message, you could probably create multiple messages, and you could create multiple criteria. The original criteria was sent, show the message to everyone, Show it to some percentage. So randomly, you might want to like send it to 50%. That was a dumb idea, but I had the idea of like A-B testing kind of thing. Pick specific people. So back then, you'd have to, I think the way you'd have to do it was you put in their actual email addresses. So you'd get an email list, uh, I think is the way it worked. And it would show it to those email addresses. And there's a couple other criteria. And then I imagine we might have some different types of messages, not just a speech bubble, but maybe one want to take over your screen. But then I like fleshed out a whole bunch of other stuff about what about not just talking to them, but also, um, you know, storing information about them. So kind of a database also. Um, And then the other part of it was like an analytics thing, which we never did. It was kind of like analytics about their behavior. And then the final part was facilitating communication. So not only could you reach out, but they could come back to you too. So I fleshed this out on a bunch of little sheets of paper I have, in my parents' house in Port Marnock. And um, you know when you have a new idea and you're just alive with that idea. Yeah, I, I, I watched this uh, TED Talk once, and I need to find out the person's name, but she talked about genius and even the origin of the word genius, geni, and how um, genius was a thing that came over people and how that was how a lot of ancient cultures thought of it not that the individual themselves was a genius but that some genie or spirit or genius kind of inhabited them at that time it was a moment and and whether or not you want to try and relate to that those words mis- mystical or spiritual references i think we all have this feeling or memory or experience where we're just ignited by an idea and we're alive at that moment and we are our, our, our best brilliant self and we got this. And it was that type of feeling like, holy shit, this is so exciting. This is so interesting. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. So interesting. So exciting. So alive. No doubt I forgot all about the relationship stuff at the time and in that moment. And I remember when I got back to Dublin, pitching Dez on this idea. And it was pretty bleak back then at the time where in these crappy offices, the heating didn't work. There was a crack in the ceiling. I specifically remember snow coming down through the crack in the ceiling one day. It was depressing. Um, but I just pitched Des on this idea. And uh, that was late, late, late 2010. And, you know, I, I, I can't recall the, the full nature of the conversations, but I think we liked the idea. And so the first thing we started to build was the, the messaging piece where you could reach out to people. We built this little message box and you couldn't yet reply to it. Uh, it was just outbound. And uh, we had a prototype, a working prototype of that before the, before the end of the year. Um, yeah.
0: Was, was Des as like inspired by the, by the ideas as you were? Like, did he, did he sort of like feel the weight of like what could be? of this or did it take him a little while to kind of hop on board?
1: He must have been for us to, to, for us to do this. The, 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 I think like the dynamic between Dez and I is a very special one. We're now working together 11 or 12 years. Intercom is like six and a half years old. So we have like a lot of, a lot of history together. We've got a lot of practice working together on a bunch of different things, but our dynamic is one where, you know, I was always the slightly angry kid with something to prove. I was a little bit, I was bullied a little in school and and kind of like felt like shit and made feel like I wasn't worth anything. And my creativity, part of that was a nerdy endeavor, but it was also, as I said earlier, an effort to like show those folks, I would usually say a different word, uh, show those people um, that it was worth something. And I want I had something to prove. And so I always had that kind of like, somewhat angry energy where i wanted to do new cool stuff i wanted to prove myself i wanted to try something for the first time and when i came up with an idea that was different i was like yes let's do it let's go and 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 you know of all amongst all the things i'm terrible at i think some of the things i'm good at is i join in dots and using my intuition and creativity matching patterns and i coming up with resonant fun new ideas and that was that was that was kind of my role but theirs was kind of my litmus test in a sense. And I'd have to kind of get stuff past theirs. Sometimes theirs would be like, that's awesome. Totally awesome. And if and if that was the case, yes, well on. Sometimes Dez would like have some sort of like doubt. He he would doubt me. And and I that would be quite upsetting. Uh I would see it in his face and we'd fight a little bit. And I'd try and convince him a little. And then maybe I don't know what happened in that argument, but then probably a day or two would settle in. And I would kind of like hear where he's coming from and I'd maybe pitch him a different idea of it. Um, but you know, it was through Des that the ideas, Des was how I found out if the ideas were good or not. And of course Des has had and has a ton of his own ideas and he, he, he would bring them to me. Um, but for me, I always want to talk to Des When I have an idea, I want to talk to Des to see if it's a good idea or not. Sometimes I just know. I'm like, yeah, let's do this. This is awesome. Let's go. But when it comes to technology and different ways of promoting ourselves or, or even the way we work in the company, I want to talk to Dez to see what he thinks. So that was always the idea. And so, but it, it was, you know, it wouldn't have been useful if Dez was always would always say, awesome, let's do it. Awesome, let's go. That, wasn't, that would never have been a useful dynamic and and even to this day the least successful people i i i work with not to their own fault and i mean this in no judgment or hate but they're those who just agree with me here at intercom Where you know we don't that don't really exist but we've had times where people would just be like sure thing owned, great and it and it it would it really it pissed me off frankly because i don't actually have all the answers and i need people to push back and tell me that's good or that's bad or like how can we shape this but Dez anyway wouldn't always easily agree but it was through the the, the, the push and pull that we we'd we'd, shit, we'd figure something out and Dez brought the pragmatic voice almost and helped us find the right place to start um so yes he obviously was excited or we wouldn't have worked on it but but no doubt he had a couple of things to say that helped to start in the right.
0: Place. Yeah, well, how the so you know six seven years ago in Ireland you've got this idea, but obviously your the the your view of the problem that you guys are solving has uh, I would assume has shifted or kind of evolved over time. So I mean like how what what what's your view on the problem to be solved now versus what it was seven years ago? Right,
1: right, right, right. So, seven years ago, the fundamental nature of the problem is, is there a better way for us to connect with users than email. That was it. Is there a better way? And actually, it went slightly further, which is or or put it a different way. We believe there's probably a better way. And uh, we want to experiment with this way more like fluid, digital, interactive means, and we want to do it in context. And that quickly became a messenger when people could respond to it. Uh, so it became this two-way thing. So the idea was predicated on the idea, the kernel that this messenger thing could be a, a new medium, and of course, messenger included. Like it was somewhat asynchronous, and it was live, and it was, it was in context, and it was personalized, and 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 whatnot. That was the idea. Then, pretty soon after that, our kind of mission, we stated our mission as making internet business personal. We realized that. Much of the magic of this messenger was that it was personal. If you looked at how people used email and all these other tools, they were grossly impersonal, and and that was shitty. The spam and the transactional nature of dealing with customers was not only just uh, a poor way to treat the customer, but it was bad for business. And we started to believe that there was an opportunity for online digital businesses to differentiate themselves by way of the way in which they connected with their customers. And later we came across some Gartner thing that lo and behold said, you know, we use this for when we spoke to investors, Gartner said in the future, brands will use personalization and and, and human interaction to, to differentiate themselves. And that's still only happening now when you see what ha- what's happening, with messengers and how how Facebook Messenger and iMessage are trying to get in there with brands. So a lot of those fundamentals haven't changed. Interestingly, in the very early days, I mean, very, very, very early days, we talked about using this messenger for every single type of communication in the business when it came to connecting with a customer. So, any person who would want to connect with a customer, we want to build stuff for them. Um, and we fleshed out all the ideas that we're still working on, like a lot of the new stuff that we're working on even to this day, we discussed early on. and. That's not to say that the details haven't changed and the nature of the technology and 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 so much, but for what it's worth, and it's actually worth a lot to me, and I'll explain now in just a second, we discussed so much of what we wanted to do with this a solid seven years ago. The reason that matters to me is because um, it just shows the potential it just shows the potential of vision, and I'm not saying that you know I think we're smart. And I'm not saying we're incredible, but I'm also not saying we're incredible visionaries, but, to, ha- but to, to have so early on just that head and heart full of so much p- potential ideas, it solves for so many problems. I would tell every single invest, potential investor and potential employee that, and I have told them that for the last six and a half years. And it makes all the difference. People want to know not only what are they joining, but please tell me it's an adventure. Please paint a picture of the future and something I could be part of. People want to be part of something. I want to be part of something. You want to be part of something. Life is short. Careers are shorter. We only get a couple shots at doing something special. And every human has an innate sense that there's potential magic and wonder out there that if only they could find it, life would be so much more interesting and wonderful. And so we were just lucky and it was part of the dynamic, Des and I, and our experience with previous businesses and a bunch of other factors at the time that gave us these ideas. And we then sold Exception, which gave us money to just think. And we spent a lot of time back then. I mean, like months back then on whiteboards. We were always biggest fans of whiteboards. At the same time, we're, we're thinking about the Intercom idea. We had this other app idea called Whiteboarder. That's another story where you would kind of record and share whiteboard illustrations. I still think it's an idea and an opportunity. Someone can have that if they want. (laughs) I'll tell them about it. Um, But we would just be on the whiteboard every day, me and Des, fleshing out a bunch of different ideas. And Kieran and and David will be building it. So exciting. So so having all those ideas early on really just gave us that energy and momentum that's carried us all these years. Um, In terms of what Intercom has become and how that's changed, You know, one of the most amazing things to see is the the degree of which this thing, you can call it a messenger if you want, has become a thing. So we built the Intercom Messenger in the same 12 months that Snapchat, WeChat, Facebook Messenger, iMessage, WhatsApp, and a bunch of others built theirs. Nobody was talking about messengers back then. No one used that word. They're all slightly different, but what they had in common was that They were kind of a blend of synchronous and asynchronous. So prior, you only had synchronous or asynchronous. You had email, which was very blocky and synchronous. You had the asynchronous, which was like live chat. You were in a chat room, or you were chatting live, and you were connected, and both parties had to be there. But you didn't have this blend where it was like you could send a message, and if they weren't online, they'd get it later, like with iMessage. But if they're quote-unquote online or just there, you can be talking fluidly. And that actually just blew up the potential for this medium because the reason live chat never really blew up to the same degree that messengers are blowing up is that people didn't have on the business side humans to staff these systems. Now bots is starting to change that too. Um, So now, six and a half years later, messengers are very much a thing, not only on the consumer side and on the business side. A bunch of consumer messengers like WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and Uh, iMessage are starting to come to the business side. They want businesses to use their channels. And so what's cool is that finally, 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 real businesses are embracing the potential for this new fluid personal form of communication. I can't stress too much how ludicrous it was, the idea that an actual real company, not a ticky tacky small company run by Oma Cabin, Des Trainer like exceptional, but a real business with hundreds of people or a big brand with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people would actually use this fluid, personal, online, chatty messenger thing where people would expose their real names. Back then you'd send messages as like the bare metrics team, you know, you wouldn't say who it was from. Now you've got photographs of people and it's so personal and people are using emojis and gifts as businesses, it, like the world has changed. So the biggest change is not in our mission or our vision. It's actually just that the time has finally come. And um, just like Dez and I, you know, we got to work together so much before starting before Intercom's time came and we got to learn so much about each other and how we wanted to work. Similarly, because we grew up alongside all these messengers and created the web messenger to get to practice, in a sense, and to think about this space so much. And then finally, um, for it to arrive is just such a gift. And so, uh, and so the change is that it's here and that now that we're ready and we have tons of resources, over 500 people, so much money in the bank, um, strong brand. And we've kind of like figured out how to work and build. You know, we started with two offices. We have five now. We started doing all our R&D just in Dublin, Ireland. Now we do it in London and San Francisco also. Um, So what's interesting is that, you know, for me, when I imagined starting a company like Intercom and indeed when we started Intercom and raised money for it and realized that we're kind of like putting ourselves on some sort of course the idea that we'd even last 3 or 4 years was a crazy idea and we imagined that 4 years in presumably you'd have to be so damn bored of this thing and it would be a bigger more corporate affair and there'd be so much bureaucracy and treacle slow ways of working and it would be gross and none of us would want to be part of this thing and and honestly the biggest surprise and it's a pleasant surprise is actually You know, when you're in a space whose time has come and and in a company that's, you know, strong and ready and able with kind, wonderful, talented people, it actually gets almost easier and more fun. You know, I I, I say that with no bravado. I'm stressed on a daily basis and find my job very difficult. Um, But the nature of the challenge is, we're better set up for it than ever before. And that's another thing that's changed.
0: I, fantastic answer. <laughs> I was, I was trying to think it was like some follow i but like that to me. It's like summarizes a, a ton of stuff for me um, and, and kind of where you guys are headed. So, uh, so that's all I got, man. Um, I, I appreciate you hopping on a call. It was, it's been fun chatting.
1: Yeah, absolute pleasure. Um, thank you for all your questions. Uh, thanks for the invite. And, uh, happy to do it anytime.
0: All right. All right. There we have it. Owen McCabe of Intercom. Thanks for listening this week. If you need revenue analytics and insights, check out bearmetrics.com. If you have any feedback, I would love to hear it. Shoot me an email, josh at baremetrics.com or on Twitter at Spigford. Head to founderchats.com to listen to lots of other conversations with startup founders. And if you enjoyed this, a rating on iTunes means a lot. Thanks again and see you next week.